welcome to Reinventing Home, a podcast about the well-lived life. I'm your host, Valerie Andrews, and today we're going to talk about the meaning of homecoming, what it's like to leave home and find our way back to it, if it's the same as it was when we left, or a place that now feels completely different. I'm pleased to have as my guest the award-winning writer, filmmaker, travel leader, and storyteller, Phil Cousineau. Phil's fascination with other cultures has taken him from Michigan to Marrakesh, Iceland to the Amazon. He knows what it's like to be on the road, and he also knows the joys of coming back to a familiar hearth. Phil has written more than 35 books about his travels, including The Hero's Journey, Stoking the Creative Fires, and The Art of Pilgrimage. He's also the host of the television series Global Spirit on PBS. I'm going to turn the tables and interview him today. First of all, I'd like to welcome you to the show, and thank you for being here today. I'm thrilled to be talking to you anytime, Valerie, especially on the radio. (laughs) Well, we've got a great topic today. It's homecoming from Homer to the Wizard of Oz, and I really can't think of anybody better than you to address that. So I'd like to begin by asking... Why do you think it is we're all so preoccupied with homecoming today, especially here in America? Is there some sense that we need to revive our cities so people will actually want to come home and inhabit them again? Great leading question. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, A couple of things. One comes to mind that I heard from my great friend Pico Iyer, the wonderful travel writer, when he was discussing his book, The Global Soul. He told me recently that there are more refugees in any time in human history. There are more people in the air, in airplanes, than at any time in human history in terms of people traveling. So there is a constant population of people wandering, leaving home, making us more rootless than ever before. Combined with that, Americans, I think from their very beginning, over a couple of hundred years ago, have been perpetually rootless uncertain about roots. And that has been an issue in in terms of who really owns the land, if you can own land in the first place, who belongs here, who can really call it home, who gets to say that. I travel a great deal. And when I'm in Europe, I often often hear from my European friends that they think that it's a little foppish, a little curious, even naive to see how many Americans go to Europe to find their roots. Now, why would we do this? Because on some level, we still don't feel quite at home in America. It's a complicated topic. I mean, but what you're saying is really, really important that that as a nation, we don't feel at home. We have memories of our ancestors moving from railroad town to railroad town Mm -hmm. as the economic landscape of America changed, and we have memories before that of our families moving from one country to the next. And so our memory is perhaps more of dislocation than it is of a central heart. Yes, that's beautifully put. And I would add to that, that we also have a kind of response, and this may take a thousand years to sort out. What did Will Durant say? It took England 700 years to produce Shakespeare, and it took France 900 years to produce Voltaire, something like that. It takes centuries for us to come up with a common identity. As an avid athlete and and sports follower and someone who's written a book on the history of the Olympics, I find it curious that we have used the verb root 
to describe our relationship with our sporting teams for at least 150 years. And I don't think that's an accident of language. I think what it's telling us is that when we root, root, root for the San Francisco Giants or the Manchester soccer team, we are sinking roots because we are identifying with the oh, land. Oh, that's, a, that's a beautiful use of the word root. I had never thought of that, that, that our teams are really our mascots with a sense of place. And of course you see that because, you know, when there's a home game, there's all of this spirit that's palpable in the stadium and you know the away team really has to work against that so so there is a really palpable sense of place when we go to our sports events almost obsessive we wear the colors as i say we wear the caps we wear the jerseys we deeply identify sometimes to the point of being berserk of course but even james hillman the great American psychologist said, rather than try to suppress, that we should actually increase the pageantry. That was the word he used. Increase the pageantry when we are talking about our pride of the home team, of the pride of the team that we root for. But it's not just in sports. It happens in, in other ways. I just came back from Detroit, where I grew up. And there are so many people walking around Detroit with what they call the old English D for the Detroit Tigers, but also sweatshirts with DIA, which means the Detroit Institute of Arts. Now, what does that mean? It means that people in Detroit who are essentially rebuilding the city, it's in a rebirth, it's in a renaissance, are identifying not just with sports, but with culture. They are actually wearing art institute or museum baseball caps and, and t-shirts. Why? It's because for about 25 years or so, it's been very hard to identify with home. When the place has gone from the, one of the fastest growing cities in the world, Detroit got up to 2 million people in the 1960s and down to about 550,000. It was very hard to begin to rebuild without a sense of pride. It's an, an axiom now that if people don't love, not just like or identify with, but if they don't love where they live, they will burn the place down. And if you're ashamed of home, which is traditionally a sanctuary where you feel safety, where you feel a sense of refuge, I think a kind of archetypal anger builds up. If you're not proud of it, if you aren't happy to go home, if you don't find sanctuary and safety and identity, you will turn on the place you live. What do you think turned Detroit around? I mean, this is your home city, and you were just back there. What do you think was the turning point? Well, I don't often talk about economics. <laughs> However, economics itself, like ecology, is a word with home at the center of it. It's based on the old Greek oikos, O-I-K-O-S. So economics, it took some investment early on. It took a couple of major tech companies to go in, some banks to go back in and say and recognize that real estate was extraordinarily, almost egregiously cheap for a short amount of time, the investment comes in, and then some pride follows with the investment. And then a commitment for the people themselves to defend home, 
Just like well, wasn't there a really home. interesting homesteading movement that popped up in Detroit? I remember reading about people who were going for a very small amount of money reclaiming these crumbling brownstones, and they were putting sweat equity in. They were going and rebuilding the plumbing and rebuilding the walls and the floors themselves, and they were young people. They were writers and artists who couldn't find another city where they could afford to live, and so people started flocking to Detroit saying, this is a place we can build with our hands. Well, that's beautifully put. I returned there a few years ago because a film I worked on about our home baseball park called Stealing Home. How about that? And (laughs) the pun on you're trying to rip our stadium down and we feel ripped off like you're stealing from us. But it's also a pun because the very first run that was ever scored at Tiger Stadium was Ty Cobb's Stealing Home. So I'm back there and we we show the film, which got nominated for an Emmy, by the way. And I ended up spending some time that afternoon and the next day walking around little businesses around the main street in Detroit on Woodward Avenue. And I kept coming up with brand new shops that had been opened by young people, not just Americans, but a whole flock of young Lithuanians, uh, Latvians, Russians who were coming because the property was so so cheap to buy. But also what I kept hearing was something really beautiful. This is where the edge is. These are 25 year olds talking, telling me New York is behind us. And I would just get swallowed up. Los Angeles, I would feel anonymous, but here I can make a contribution. Now, isn't that a beautiful element of how you build a home? This Ah. is perhaps the true meaning of the word living space or living room, Mm. that you have a place to grow. With an edge of awe, I kept hearing that in the voice of the people who were saying, I want to bring this city back. In other words, I want to build home. Now, you know Greek myth as well as I do, and you know there's this wonderful notion of Hestia, who's the goddess of the hearth. Yes. Both in the individual home, but also there was a Hestia sanctuary in every town, every city, 300 major cities in ancient Greece. There is something sacred about the home, and with your marvelous project, Reinventing Home, if uh, I think it's important to remind ourselves that there is not just an economic aspect of a house, right? The equity, the mortgage, and so on, but there's a sacred element. And the sacred element is what you will fight for. It's what you will build a family around. Again, going back to the Greeks, I love this idea of xenia, X-E-N-I-A, and it's a code of hospitality. We have some of that in our language now when we talk about xeno, the negative side. Phobia. Xenophobia, shutting it's people out. The hatred or the suspicion of strangers. But the Greeks had another beautiful word, which I would love to bring back. Xenophilia. Ah, uh, xenophilia. the love of strangers. And the notion, uh, would you like to come in? Would you like to come to dinner? Would you like to have some tea? Or could you meet me in the taverna? There's an element of home there when we get an invitation from someone who wants us to feel at home when we are visiting somewhere. So I, I love this topic, but it's also double-edged for me. There is the, the literal home where we have our address and we keep our favorite books and Miles Davis albums, but there's also this constant urge in the human condition to, when we travel, to make ourselves at home somewhere else. 
I love this, and I know you've written a lot about pilgrimage, and, and that was one of the things I had hoped we'd cover today, is, mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. is what it means to go away from home in order to find home again, and how we seem to need the rhythm of going from one place to another in order to really have that sense of, of homecoming. I would consider the Australian walkabout, the Aborigine walkabout, as a pilgrimage. You're going back to the site of the ancestors to be replenished, to have a vision. And I think that happens right up to the modern day. And the pilgrimage is the journey you can't, can't take. I love the double negative in there. In other words, there's a crisis and your wife can't save you, your best friend friend isn't going to give you the answer, your rabbi or your priest can't quite help you, even your psychoanalyst who you've been talking to for 10 years. And so there's something deep in the human soul. I call it the psychotropic function, and I don't mean taking drugs. Literally, (laughs) psychotropic means the turning of the soul. The turning of the psyche. I want to yeah. get into Odysseus here because this, yeah, yeah. Is, this is the primary myth. And I know that you went back to Greece and tracked it in the, the steps of Odysseus coming home to Ithaca this summer. And I know that you have written about the meaning of this myth for all of us. So tell me, what do you think is happening? How is Odysseus alive in all of us today? It's such a timely question, because as you mentioned, I was just there in Ithaca. I've been going to Greece since 1975, but Ithaca is very difficult to get to. So I didn't actually make the the visit until recently, and I'm now inspired to take the lead a tour there next year in the footsteps of Odysseus and Penelope, because finally the women and the goddesses are getting their say in this ancient story. Good. For both sides of the human race. The hero and the heroine's journey. We see the same thing with Greta Thunberg and all the wonderful young female activists we have now who Greta got on a boat and she came across the ocean because she didn't want to fly. She wanted to reduce her carbon footprint. So she came on an Odysseus-like journey on a ship with a mast to America. And I think we're responding to her and to that voyage in a way because this story has been in us for about 2,700 years, probably older if you go back to the oral tradition. So why is it important now? Odysseus reluctantly goes off to war, and when he leaves, he's trying to, as we used to say in Detroit, TCB, take care of business. He's just become a father. He has an infant son, so he turns to his best friend, Mentor. Will you take care of my son while I'm away? And that's the origin of our word and our notion of the mentor, the person who will take care of the children, of the young people when we go off to war. So we know he fights for 10 years before Troy is brought to its knees and then raised to the ground. The psychological aspect, and the one that is so significant to us now, is that it takes him not just a couple of months to go from the west coast of what is now Turkey back to Ithaca on the west coast of Greece, but it takes him 10 years. My old friend Joseph Campbell, the great scholar of mythology, once joked that it was because he had to earn, I love this notion, he had to earn his way back home. And to do that, he had to fight or overcome or endure two things monsters and women. This is the awakening of a man who has not quite appreciated his wife, Penelope, and who has upset the gods. 
and the gods, especially Poseidon, are wrecking havoc on his effort to get home again. One of the, the most compelling parts of the story that I think would be very helpful for, for listeners, especially in your realm of reinventing home, is this. When he becomes lovers with Circe, she offers him more immortality. Just stay with me. Be my lover. You will be immortal. We will make love forever. You will never want for a thing. But he is pining for Ithaca. He is feeling what the Greeks called nostalgia. Nostalgia is Greek for the pain of going home again. It's not sentimental. The original sense of nostalgia, which I just felt going back to Detroit, is that it's bittersweet. So he's pining for Penelope, for his son Telemachus, for the land. This is really important, Valerie, for us to talk about the land itself, the land aspect of home. And so she says, there's only one person who can help you get home again, because you have offended the gods. That's Teresius. So you have to go down into the land of the dead. This is one of the most magnificent aspects of Homer's book. He goes down into the underworld, and Teresius, the sage, the soothsayer, tells him, you can get home again. Now, here is the psychological, for me, revelation. You can get home again, but you will have to suffer. It is not easy to get home again. The gods will make it difficult for you to do this. You, this line slays me. You will have to curb your desires and the desires of the men in your crew. It's your desires that have kept you from getting home again. This is so culturally relevant. We are we are living in an age where we can follow our desires in a nanosecond. We can, you know, buy something by pressing a button on our iPhone. We can become famous by having the perfect 280-character tweet that just says the thing that catapults us into the public sphere. We have all of these things that are preying on our desires and what I feel people are longing for, and one of the reasons why I wanted to start this magazine is I feel that we are longing for home and for true content and to get back to that content of the home and of the self and of the soul that you write about so beautifully in all of your books, we have to let go of the desire for the perfect meal that we capture in, in our Insta chat for all of these things that are like Cersei calling to us saying, I'm going to give you your 10 seconds of fame. It's like, how do we go deeper? How do we get beyond that seduction of technology and do what Odysseus had to do? Flash ourselves to the mast and get back home. And then what do we do when we get back home? We can either revert right back to the whole cult of desire because the world is there. It will feed our, all, all our desires, but we will still be lonely if we don't make the next move. And for me, the next move is to sink our roots into where we are. And we can do that by knowing the history of the place, the music, the people who lived there before us pay attention to the, the smells. The I call it the five-sense approach to where we are. When was the last time any of us walked around our neighborhood and just were like, didn't touch our cell phones, but instead just smelled? I live in North Beach here in San Francisco, and I'm lucky in that way. I can walk around the neighborhood, and of course I'm watching, but I'm also smelling because we have real bakeries here. 
We have many coffee shops. If I can smell, that is actually bringing me home again. James Hillman, to say him again, cites the notion that smell is the strongest and the most transportive of our senses. It's also the most ancient, the olfactory Ah, sense is the oldest. And for me, when I walk through certain sections of Mill Valley and I smell the eucalyptus trees, I'm immediately transported to the first time I set foot in California. Oh, wonderful. I think it's also a way for us to go home again, a single smell, a castor oil of all things for me, because my grandmother lived with us for a while, Grandma Dora, and she used to pinch my nose and pour castor oil down my throat and said, someday you thank me for this, Philip. Well, what just happened just now, I used the phrase, the word, I can roll those syllables in my mouth, and my grandma Dora is standing right here in the room with me. I suggest that if we are trying to reinvent home, we reinvent or revisit. Maybe that's the better verb. We revisit our senses. Music. Here's another example. Late last night, Joe and I, my wife Joe and I, went to hear a magnificent Greek musician, Zaloris, and his partner, uh, White, who hail from Crete, where I've spent a great deal of time over the years. And the room was filled with 200 people, probably two-thirds of them were Greek. And why were they there, Valerie? They were there to go home again. Through music. The music transported them. You could hear (gasps) gasps for two hours during this concert because they were Flown, they were transported back to Crete, to Greece, probably thinking about parents, old boyfriends and girlfriends and so on. Our senses are transportive. And if we can honor our senses and our memory about home, we, I think we can even strengthen wherever we live now. Does that make sense to you? It, it makes a lot of sense. I, lo- I love your five senses approach. I think that would be a great writing exercise for everybody who's listening to just really go down and take a look at what you see when you look out your window, what you smell when you open the, the door and step out into the street, what you taste when you have memories of home, and the tactile. You know, think about what it feels like to polish a table and feel a grain of wood and actually care for the things in your household and touch them and get the sense of their own aliveness. That's beautiful. You know, when James Joyce wrote Ulysses, we know this because we can see in his journals and diaries and so on, every chapter had a color, a mineral, a god, a smell, a sense of touch. And I think this is why when he finished being the brash Irishman that he was, he said he wanted to baffle scholars for a thousand years, but that by reading Ulysses, future scholars, future readers could reassemble Dublin brick by brick. That book has always been such a vast puzzle. And just like Joseph Campbell gave us the key to Finnegan's Wake, I think you just gave us the key to Ulysses. But I think that's a key for your listeners and your readers for Reinventing Home as well, because if we can reinvent where we live now with a bit of an echo, let's call it an echo of where we grew up, a color scheme on our walls, a sense of smell, maybe by the flowers that we have in the house or around the home. We are constantly re-evoking the home we came from and strengthening the home of what we're building at the moment. 
That's beautiful. That's a wonderful exercise. I'd kind of like to wrap with mm. one of our favorite films about homecoming, mm-hmm. and that's The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> you know, because I mean, I think that resonates so much with all of us because we're talking about a young person, and this film is laying out the archetype of losing and refinding home that you've just so beautifully described in our interview. And I'm wondering what it is about that film that speaks to you. And if, if you had to come up with one theme in that movie that you, that you would want our listeners to really meditate on, what would you choose? In the early 60s, 60, 61, 62, someone, I think it was at CBS, took a, a chance and they played it or they ran it on Easter Sunday. And they got such a hue and cry, a tremendous response for it. They played it again the next year and then the next year. The whole time I was growing up, The Wizard of Oz was associated with Easter Sunday. Now, what would the overlap be? Rebirth, resurrection. There is something about a true hero or heroine journey film in which the character, young boy, young girl, either literally or symbolically dies at the beginning and is reborn by coming home again. So the Easter Association is, I think, is what has catapulted it into being a worldwide film phenomenon that's, that's instantly recognizable. And then the second part is in the very last scene of the movie, the Wicked Witch of the West turns to young Dorothy laying in her bed, feeling her forehead because she's had a big bump and she's wondering, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? And I believe the line is, from the wicked, or what's she called? The good witch? It would be the good oh, witch. Oh, Glenda. Good Glenda, witch. yes. Thank you. If you just wake up, you will see that you have always been at home. I'm yes. paraphrasing, but that's very close. And to me, that's the key to the film. It's a kind of epiphany. After all the journeys we've seen, it's metaphysical, which is very unusual for a Hollywood film. But there's an, a truism. There's an ancient truism there. The Buddhists said it. What's the essence of my teaching? Wake up. Most great spiritual teachers have said the same thing. We go to sleep, as Gurdjieff would have put it. We all, we're human. We go to sleep, and then philosophy, religion, travel, art, these are all different ways to wake us up again. What that means is you wake up and all five senses are alive, and you realize you can be home anywhere. This brings back a memory for me. We moved a lot when I was a kid. And uh, I think one of the things I've always related to in The Wizard of Oz is the sense that I think every child has, that no matter how wonderful their upbringing is, there's this moment when you feel like you're a stranger in a strange land. You feel like you're an orphan, just like Dorothy, who has actually lost her parents and she's being raised by Auntie M. There's that feeling of, do they really love me? Is this really my home? Are these really my parents? Do I really belong here? And I remember when we moved to one new town, I had a sort of orphan Annie scarf that I that I wore to school, and the kids called me orphan that day. And I remember just getting very determined and deciding that I was going to make this place my home, and I started making friends. And I realized that the whole message for me in The Wizard of Oz is the point that 
we all feel like the stranger in the strange land. We all feel like the orphan. But it's how we manage to make a place into our true home that really gives us character and really gives our lives meaning. And this is getting back to everything you talked about in the beginning of this conversation, that the Wizard of Oz is really about the discovery that we make home. It's never given to us. We have to make it. We have to make it with our senses, with our spirits, and with our hands. Beautiful. And I would add two things to that, which is these are traditional components in fairy tales, as Bruno Bettelheim says in Uses of Enchantment. And then it's brought into the forefront by Frank L. Baum. And he actually said, as Americans, we cannot rely on European fairy tales anymore. I am making one for young American children. And by doing that, he does two quick things. There's an animal component there. Toto is a reminder in all fairy tales. The animal says you need to get back to your animal nature. You can't do this alone with just ratiocination. You can't get by on your superhuman intellectual effort. You need contact with the natural world and the animal world. And the other aspect, it's lonely to be a kid. It's lonely to be in that never-never land in between youth and adulthood. But if you find allies, the cowardly lion, right, the tin man and the scarecrow, if a young child, and probably into the teens, can find allies, they will know they're not alone. And they can if you get can find your allies, you, you can find your way home. That's the formula throughout human history. And part of the classic, the corrosive American loneliness now is our myth of individualism that says, the upside is we are the greatest innovators and tinkerers in human history, from Thomas Edison to Steve Jobs. However, the myth of individualism pits us against our own families, against the community, against the tribe. In The Wizard of Oz, we see young Dorothy alone, scathingly alone, but then she finds three allies. And remember when they begin the dance to the land of Oz, they actually skip along the road. It's one of the most enchanting moments in movie history because I think that's how we all feel when we find we're not alone. We do have an ally to get to the enchanted land of Oz. It's that skipping. It's that lightheartedness. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm inspired by the Russian painter Chagall, who once wrote that I paint in order to be surprised. And I believe that as a writer, the greatest writing happens when we surprise ourselves. Where did that come from? How did I think of that? I like to think of the surprise element about coming home again, where you bring a gift to the people that you love. You make some kind of shift in order to surprise yourself in your own relationship with home. Be open to some kind of change when you come back as a traveler. As you've asked me to think about, and I'm so glad that you did, when I went back to Detroit, was it the same? Was I the same? No, it's almost completely different, but so am I. And is there a particular ritual you have when you cross your threshold and you do a lot of travel and you're, you're really the spokesperson for what we can gain from pilgrimage, and yet your own homecoming must be, must be profound for you? For me, it's music maybe some blues or some classical. And when I hear the music, I feel like I'm home again here in San Francisco. That's what grounds me. And I think there's a, a kind of a universal element to that. For millennia, when a pilgrim would return home, 
the neighbors and the family would put on a kind of fete or a feast. And what happened? You just didn't sit and celebrate. You just didn't sit around and think about what had just happened six months, being on the road, going around the world or a year, whatever it might be. People danced and they sang and they ate together. So you have a feast when you come home of some kind. You break bread, you have a drink, you clink glasses. Those are all elemental rituals to say, all right, that part of my life is over for now. I'm home again. Yes. Well, we actually reinvent <laughs> home the minute we set foot in it again. So yep. homecoming is re- it's so active. It's such an active thing. We have to we have to re-embrace where we are. We re-embrace the people. We have a a reunion as you said beautifully with everybody in the neighborhood, with our family, with our friends. So that's really what I mean about reinventing home and you have just You've just described it to a T. So, so you you listen to music, and is there anything anything else you do? Is there is there a person that you call? Is there something you like to do with your wife or your son that makes it feel like I'm home now? I'm really here. We tell stories. My son Jack is 23 now, and we have a kind of traditional greeting upon return. So, Pop, was it fun? What did you do? Who did you meet? What did you see? Those are elemental questions. And of all things, I know this can sound really literary, but my inspiration, or how can I say vindication for this, is Chaucer in in Canterbury Tales, of all things, when he has this beautiful notion that the, the pilgrim leaving London to go to Canterbury finds a stranger on the first day of travel to tell her story to. I am from London, and this is who I am. This is what I do. But on the way back, Chaucer says, you try to find a second stranger to tell the stranger what happened when you reached Canterbury Cathedral. I think this is, what, 800 years old or so, but psychologically, it is so astute that the moment we begin to tell the story, this is who I saw, this is what I felt, the story is the way that we incorporate the travel into the home. Does that make sense? Uh, that's to, beautiful. To, to incorporate, to bring into the body. That's what that word means. To bring into the body and into the soul what you saw. So what did I tell Jack, my son, a few days ago when I returned from Detroit? Jack, I saw many people. I was honored at this library, and I had a wonderful month at the James Thurber House in Columbia, in Columbus, Ohio. But the major or the most moving element of my journey, Jack, was that I went to the grave of your grandfather. And I showed him a photograph of the gravesite where I took him when he was three years old. And that I could see my son was deeply moved by that. And it's a bit of a risk sometimes to tell our friends and family what was truly the most moving part of our travels. But you know what? It's most searingly honest as well. I cannot have a complete trip back home without going to my father's grave. But then also to raise a glass with a couple old friends there. That's beautiful, Phil. That's a beautiful description of homecoming and and the way we wrap things up emotionally when we allow ourselves to be fully present for them. It takes a few risks, doesn't it? It does, but the rewards are marvelous. I want to thank you for being with us today, and I hope to talk to you again in the future about other aspects of home. It's always a delight to speak with you, and I'm going to 
tell our readers how they can learn more about the art of making a pilgrimage. And in all your books on creativity, the art of coming home is always present. So thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a joy. I felt like I was home talking to you. Thanks, Phil. 